HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is being brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, believers in good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported, nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country, to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org donate to become a member now. Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Airway. And uh, we talk a lot about cookbooks on this show. In fact, every other show, it's a new cookbook. And my bookshelf is inundated. My apartment is inundated with cookbooks. So I like to think that I know a lot about cookbooks. But even, uh, you know, a lot of us who collect cookbooks, geek out about them, um, you know, how much do we really know about the history of cookbooks? That's what I'm wondering. Because when I got this book... Um, um, along with many others, <laughs> one week, um, this book that I'm holding right now, uh, I learned that, you know, cookbooks really were a late development in the world of literature. And it actually, there was an explosion of cookbooks in Arabic from the 10th to the 13th century. I'm so thrilled to be holding a translation of a popular cookbook from 13th century Syria. And it has been trans- uh, translated and edited by my author, um, by my guest today, who is the author, um, or I guess the editor and translator of it. Uh, it is called Sense and Flavors, a Syrian cookbook. And um, culinary historian Charles Perry is on the line right now. Hi, Charles. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks so much for joining us. And um, tell us a little bit about yourself, because you are a culinary historian. You've written a lot about cooking in med- medieval Middle East. 
Um, you've translated other cookbooks like a Baghdad cookery book, um, the book of dishes. And now sense and flavors is sort of, um, well, we can get into this a, a bit later, but it is a very large, almost 700, uh, recipe, uh, cookbook about a banquet feasting and also a lot of perfumes. Um, but how, you know, how did you first of all get interested in, um, Syrian, Syria and Syrian culture and, uh, also cookbooks from this era? In place. Well, I majored in uh, Middle East studies in college, and <clears throat> at one time I was beautifully fluent in Arabic mm-hmm. uh, because I spent a year studying in Lebanon, uh, which okay. is where I got interested in food, and I'm still very fond of Lebanese food. Nice. All right. And uh, uh, some years ago, I read a book by Claudia Roden called uh, A Book of Arabesque, food, in which she had some translations of 13th century recipes from oh. another book. Huh. And a light went on in my brain, and I just had to find out more. I was a starving freelance writer at the time, but I, after haunting the UCLA Research Library for months, I had an itinerary of uh, places where I was going to get books, and I gathered together every dime. Wow. <clears throat> and so- um, mm-hmm. went off on a manuscript gathering expedition. <laughs> and this was the main manuscript. I, I, I have about... Um, Eight manuscripts of this particular uh, of scents uh, and flavors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, there are there are others scattered around too. I've seen fragments and so on. It was apparently that was the best seller. There are copies everywhere from India to London. Wow. And you write that it's surprising that they survived because they weren't. You know, they were they were sort of like mass produced from the <laughs> from the Middle Ages. Um, but so they were in fragments sometimes, but this one was just so popular that there was enough copies of it around that you were able to sort of piece it together. Is that right? That's about the size of it, yeah. yeah. I, uh, I'm working from one manuscript, which is pretty early, is uh, the beginning of the 14th century. These books were copied for centuries. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're, but, you know, various other... The thing is, you know, when you copy manuscripts, you're always making mistakes. Mm-hmm. So you have to compare a bunch of manuscripts to get an idea of what's really going on. And then there were some additions and subtractions to it along the way, along the years of different edits, uh, versions, or... Hard to know whether they're edits or, you know, if, if a manuscript, uh, if a recipe disappeared because uh, uh, the copyist just missed it. You know, you're going back and forth from the text to the, the, the copy, and you sometimes miss things. And the addition of recipes, you know, that might have been the work of scribes. They might have just uh, said, well, I'm going to add some more recipes uh, um, new expanded edition. Get it now. Hmm. Well, I think it's fascinating that um, you know there was this cookbook moment in time in the Arabic world, um, and it seems like uh, you know you write about that there was you know three maybe Babylonian clay tablets in antiquity that you could say were cookbook or cookbook related, um, but we didn't see anything until this period in the 10th to 13th century. Um, well, the, the Greeks and the Romans wrote cookbooks, and one of the one of the Roman cookbooks has survived. Mm-hmm. But um, <clears throat> it's amazing, you know, in Chinese culture, you know, I've never been a more food obsessed people than the Chinese. <laughs> but they didn't collect recipes into books. Yeah, find recipes scattered here and there in the literature. Yeah, uh, in this case, it was because um, when the Arabs conquered Iran, uh, the Persian court had had a cult of gastronomy and. Uh, Gentlemen were expected to know right. how to cook. They were cooking contests. <clears throat> and so they had their own personal recipe collections, and they took up mm-hmm. this habit also in Baghdad. And eventually a guy made an anthology of recipes from all these little <clears throat> personal cookbooks and thus created 
you know, the idea of a cookbook with hundreds of recipes. Cool. So this is not peasant cooking. This is like cooking for the, the you know, the high society, for the courts and so, so forth. This is banquet cooking, right? Yeah, that, there was no point in, yeah. in recording everyday dishes. People already knew them. Well, we do that now. (laughs) Want to know the fancy stuff. Right, right. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So just to give us some perspective, do you know when in the Western world we started doing that or writing? Because I understand it was more like a housewife sort of or cook. uh, I don't know. Not housewife, but what should I say? Like a household um, cook. Um, Let's let's just say that cookbooks are late development because... It's actually more efficient to learn by apprenticeship right? from your mother or another cook. They can explain things a lot better than cookbooks. Cookbooks just allow you to have a wider perspective of possible recipes. But also these are celebration foods. These were, these were special occasion foods, and there's something really special about them. You must assume that they must have um, wanted to write it down to pass right. along. Yeah. Well, they, they, the, in, the Europeans started to write cookbooks right around the same the same time that this great period of Arabic cookbook writing ended, ah. uh, and the late 13th century. Okay. But they were in, first, in the beginning; they were just little, you know, 40 or 50 recipes kind of collections, and it's uh-huh. very brief. Uh, this 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 book is uh, some of the recipes very detailed, and as, as you mentioned, there's uh, one version of the manuscript is about 700 recipes. Yeah, no kidding. So. And it's amazing that you noticed uh, that you mentioned that Claudia Rodin had referred to, um, you know, a recipe because they're still valid. They're still relevant. And um, flipping through them, you know, I'm not a scholar of, of Middle Eastern cuisine, but I recognize uh, the looks of some dishes, you know, like a pheasant like uh, chicken with pomegranate juice cooked here. And, um, you know, I, I'm curious, why did you decide to reprint this book? Do you find that it's actually really useful today for cooking? Well, uh, most of the recipes are actually doable. Yeah. Uh, I did it because, <clears throat> well, because I'm an obsessive. <laughs> okay. You know, I, I, I <laughs> sure really want to do this. And, and also there is interest because this is the, the, the number one Arab cookbook of the Middle Ages. Uh, so the, cool. Uh, it, you know, it was uh, uh, widely influential. Yeah, no kidding. And also, I mean, uh, we all know that, you know, the civil war in Syria has been raging for several years now, and um, there's tens of thousands of refugees from Syria in the U.S., but also throughout the world. Um, it's time to, you know, learn about the culture. And I think that um, this is this was particularly interesting to me and perhaps many other people um, in part to sort of learn about the culture, because, you know, through food, we learn not just how to make it chicken dish, but um, sometimes recipes or cookbooks can really give you a glimpse into that culture. Do you feel that's the case with this book? It's absolutely a case with this book. This book has a whole chapter on perfumes at the beginning, mm-hmm. and then a chapter on perfume soaps, and then a chapter on um, fragrant waters to splash yourself with at the end of the meal, because at a medieval banquet, the diners were supposed to contribute to something to the uh, aromas of the, of the meal. Right, to the sensory experience, they're part of it. So they come there heavily perfumed, right? Is that the idea? Like if you're going to well, show up, you're going gonna... to... You'd get up in the morning, uh-huh. you'd go to the steam bath, you'd get a rub down, and then you would, there were separate perfumes for the hands, the face, the hair, and the clothes. Okay. And uh, then, <laughs> then you would go there, and then you would wash your hands with perfume soap before you ate. Mm-hmm. And then after you ate, there were other perfume uh, 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 pre- preparations to clean your hands because you eat with your hands, mm-hmm. and then you splash yourself with this stuff, and it was just a sensory overload. <laughs> 
Um, I can't believe nobody has had a special pop-up dinner based on this. Well, maybe maybe they will now that we have you know, this great new translation of this book, but uh, I would love to be a part of that. <laughs> no, but so you write that, you know, this book is not just recipes for cooking. There's a lot of perfumes involved in this cookbook because it just goes together. Like, why why would you have a cookbook that doesn't have also these soaps that you're talking about and the, the splashes? And um, it sounds like that very much is a, you know, part of the whole eating experience in these this kind of, yes. yeah, society. Absolutely. Uh, some of these perfumes are extremely elaborate. I don't know whether anybody will make them in the modern world, uh-huh. but it will give you an idea about how very seductive and luscious a medieval banquet was. What do you mean by really elaborate? Because like, I'm thinking like a lot of perfumes are like a blend of, I don't know, 18 different essential oils, right? So how is that? What is a really elaborate? Well, a lot of different ingredients and also multiple steps. Oh. of uh, reducing and then uh, boiling down and then uh, mixing with oils. and that, uh, <clears throat> Some of them just uh, drove me nuts because the, the, <laughs> the recipes were so long. <laughs> well, thank you for, for slogging through that. Um, <laughs> I, I definitely think that's... <laughs> like, this is such an interesting um, glimpse into the lifestyle. And uh, tell us more about um, why, you know, fragrancing yourself. Is this part of the sort of, like, I don't know, I'm not going to say this right, um, but a sort of like balance uh, between your body and um, you, you write a little bit about this, that balancing the body's humors, right? They did believe that, uh, or at least some people did. I'm not sure whether any, how, many, how much store any individual gave to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I think it's just basically because this was a very um, uh, scent-obsessed culture. Huh. Um, uh, you know, Indonesia, India, and the ancient Middle East were all, you know, just, I mean, they were using incense for everything. And they, the incense trade was a big deal. Hmm. And there, there, there are many stories uh, showing how, how much people uh, <coughs> cared about uh, fine scents. Yes. Wow. Frankincense, myrrh, and all that. Uh, there's also ambergris used here, um, which is whale vomit-based um, perfume. Um, well, that's that's the that's not the gourmet's way of discussing. I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs> well, I I think it's um I think it's an interesting tidbit I like to share. Um, so um we're gonna um Charles, if you don't mind, we're gonna cut to a quick little commercial interlude and be right back chatting more. Bob's Red Mill has been milling whole grains since 1978. When you mill whole grains, you get all three parts: the bran, the germ, and the endosperm. The bran, or the roughage, makes up about 14% of the whole grain. It's the outer skin of the edible kernel. It contains large amounts of B vitamins, some protein, trace minerals, phytochemicals, but most importantly, dietary fiber. The germ is only about 2.5% of the kernel. It's actually the sprouting section of the seed, what's going to grow into a plant. It's usually separated during milling process because it contains most of the fat and therefore has a shorter shelf life. The endosperm is the main energy storage unit 
of the seed. That's where the growing plant gets its energy before it can start photosynthesizing and making its own. It makes up a huge portion of the grain, about 83%, and it's the main source that's used for white flour. When you make white flour, you get rid of the germ and the bran and just have the white endosperm left. It contains almost all the carbohydrates. It also contains protein and iron and some of the other B vitamins as well. It's kind of what you classically think of when you're thinking of flour. So all that's there when you're milling with whole grains, but when you mill with whole grains, you also get the bran, which is the kind of roughage and gives that, that's what gives that, that kind of color to it. Also gives you extra fiber that uh, helps you to be regular. And you also get the germ, which adds the fat and the flavor, which we all like from whole grains. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. All right, we're back chatting with Charles Perry. He is the editor and translator of Scents and Flavors, a Syrian cookbook. This is actually hailing from the 13th century in Syria, and it is just now published by Columbia University, sorry, NYU, New York University Press. Whoops. Um, so congratulations also on getting this, um, you know, translated and published. Was that a difficult challenge? Oh, it was, a, it was a long job. First of all, I had all these manuscripts that got errors and omissions, and so I had to compare all these manuscripts um, side by side. And you know, a scribe's handwriting is often not very hard to, to read. Hmm. And particularly, you know, cookbooks were, were not literary works. Wait. They were practical works, and so they were copied rather cheaply on the whole. Uh, every once in a while, you find a copy that's very... Uh, carefully written, but there, mm-hmm. there's one of this book that was very carefully written, but the guy had beautiful handwriting and he was making all sorts of mistakes. And, so the, the, and, mm-hmm. and editors said, okay, stop with the fancy handwriting, just give me a commercial copy. Oh. And so I, I had to compare all these things, and I had um, uh, several academics uh, working with me, looking over my shoulder, challenging every word as they're supposed to do. Wow. So it went on for, eight, for about five years. Wow. Well, only five years, and there's... Um you know, almost 700 recipes here, so that's that's quite a lot of work. Um, I think it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, a scribe. So the author is not um, writing it down themselves, right? So a scribe has to be writing it because they're specialized in, in writing. Is that correct? Well, the, the author would write it down. And, mm-hmm. of course, when we talk about an author, as you know, a cookbook author is really kind of a compiler. Right. Because most of the recipes are already in the yeah. world. Yeah, okay. So... Uh, so, but he would he would uh, do an original edition and an ur text as we call it in academe, and then uh, scribes would copy it. Copy uh, it. I don't yeah. think they. Yeah, there was no such thing as royalties. They would just copy it. Mm-hmm. And, and you... <laughs> uh, it would de- depend on how much he wanted to pay for how careful a copy you wanted. Uh huh. So the original authors, you know, if there's authors like some chef from that court or whatever, those were like those were the originators of the recipes. But you know, we we've compiled them here in this. Um, huge book. Um, Generally speaking, we don't know much about the people who write yeah. these books, but this guy was a member of the aristocracy of uh, 13th century Syria because he name drops a lot. Okay. You know, I learned this from my uncle, the Lord of Aleppo, and that sort of thing. Hmm. Now that's cool. That's an interesting tidbit. You can eat like the fancy people. Oh, wow. So you also mentioned, though, that some parts are poorly written because it seems like the the transcriber didn't really know too much about cooking. I would say that none of the scribes knew the first thing about cooking. Yeah, so they, they were just... Often they were just guessing. <laughs> and then, and if they would make a mistake, then somebody else would be copying their manuscript, they would keep the mistake, and then add more. Huh. 
So it gets to be kind of like uh, a Sargasso Sea. Sounds like we oh. need... Oh, <laughs> go ahead. Oh, no, just, you know, floating fragments of things, and yeah. you've got to try to bring some order in it. So you, you sort of did the equivalent of the um, modern-day recipe tester, but um, <laughs> only in verbal form by trying to make it more sense of it. I um, did test recipes. Did you? Yeah? Yeah. How was that? Oh, some of them are wonderful. There's a recipe that's only found in this book mm-hmm. um, that is kind of like a deconstructed baklava. It's Ooh. like baklava with the nuts on the outside. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's really wonderful. It doesn't really use phyllo dough. It's, it's, it's made from noodle paste with a little bit of butter in it, which is rolled paper thin. Wow. So it's sort of like phyllo that's also a little bit crumbly. Mm-hmm. I love the simplicity of it. So just flipping through it, I think that, you know, like you're saying, some of these look and sound absolutely wonderful. And, um, you know, it doesn't matter what time and place you're in. For instance, there's a section on cauliflower for which there are three recipes. The first recipe has uh, meat and chickpeas and garlic and coriander leaves uh, or cilantro. Um, the second one has yogurt. And, um, and then there's one with vinegar and lemon juice. Um, you know, and then there's a stuffed eggplant dish. They all just sound great. <laughs> like some of, some of the combinations I think you wouldn't think of and yeah. they really work. There's a dish of black-eyed peas okay. that is flavored with um, walnut paste. Uh, you, you grind walnuts, and then you fry them very slightly to get rid of the mm-hmm. raw flavor, and then add caraway. Walnuts, caraway, and black-eyed peas are a wonderful combination. Wow. Black-eyed did... peas have a little bit of a fresh vegetable kind of scent, and this just plays right off those. No kidding. Oh. I, I did some cooking demonstrations in Abu Dhabi a mm-hmm. month ago, and this was one of the big hits. Do you think that people are still cooking like this, or did they forget, you know, about that particular dish for the most part? It's not as common? Well, you have to remember that uh, recipes are they're part of culture. Some of them, they're, when a recipe is really fashionable, eventually that means it's going to be unfashionable. Yeah. <laughs> and so very few actual dishes have survived since that time, but some of the basic principles have. They always like yeah. cooking meat with a sour fruit juice. Yeah. These days, they may not use fruit juice at all. They may just use a little bit of lemon juice mm-hmm. in medieval uh, stews, in Middle Eastern stews. That's not a failed marinara sauce. The, le- the tomato juice is just there to give a little uh, acid balance against the meat. Mm-hmm. And they also used a, a lot of uh, spice combinations, uh, always including coriander and cinnamon. And uh, that's still very common in the Middle East, although in Lebanon... Uh, that's often reduced. They'll just use allspice. Yeah, see, allspice is allspices. <laughs> you know, when you think about it, like um, some ingredients just came into fashion or came available, like tomatoes, for instance, instead of cooking in all these, you know, cherry juices and the whatever, the pomegranate and uh, I see rhubarb here, other kind of berries, you know, and then we have tomatoes all of a sudden from the New World and uh, let's cook with that for acidity. Um, yes, and uh, the potato came in. Mm-hmm. And it replaced taro root. Taro? They were, oh, I didn't know they that. They cooked with taro root, just as the Greeks and Romans had. Okay. And in some Arabic dialects, the word for potato is the old word for taro. Oh, wow. They are quite similar. I wonder why they favored one over the other. Well, potatoes potatoes are, are easier to handle. Okay. And, uh, you know, uh, hmm. They taste better, frankly. They have more flavor than the taro. Well... Well, I mean, this is such a cool, like, history lesson. Um, and, you know, 
when you get an older cookbook, I find that, um, and even just today's cookbook, you can see that everything is sort of filtered through the fashions of the day, you know? So even, even like a recipe that may be sort of like a classic, like you can't change, it'll have some twists, um, due to whatever's in fashion at that time. Yeah, it always happens. Mm-hmm. There's one 13th century book I translated that was uh, uh, al-Baghdadi's cookbook. Um, mm-hmm. A few years later, somebody added 240 recipes to it, and nearly all the original recipes were changed a little bit. They mm-hmm. used different spices or different quantities of this and that. And then when the original book was translated into Turkish three centuries after that, once again, all the recipes were altered a little bit to go along with the prevailing taste. By the way, my translation of Baghdadi's cookbook was translated into Turkish. Oh, wow. I'm just ridiculously proud of that. Oh, that's awesome. Well, so now it's being used in Turkey. So is that the idea? Yeah, there, there, yeah. Are, there will be people in Turkey who are using it because they're very keen on their food. Oh, that's fantastic. Do you think that, um, do you hope that this book, Sense and Flavors, will be translated into Farsi? I hadn't thought about that. Uh, somebody has already approached me about translating into Turkish. Okay, Turkish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You call it a Syrian cookbook, though. Is it just from Syria, or is it more like sort of across this region? Well, there was there was a, a, a general region of cookery that included uh, Egypt and Iraq as well. The, the great amount of similarity and number of dishes that were common throughout the area. Uh, this is specifically Syria. Mm-hmm. And specifically inland Syria, the area where this guy's uh, fancy relatives lived. And so it's inland, so there's no fresh fish. Hmm. I think there's hardly, any, hardly even any dried fish in the book. And um, lemons are often referred to by an adjective which indicates that they were imported from Lebanon or coastal Syria because they don't grow so well in the interior. Ah, so there are things that are actually specifically... Very uh, specific to Syria. This region, yeah. Mm. Interesting. Do you think... Um, I guess my question is, do people still cook these dishes for the most part? Or is this sort of preserving dishes that are, you know, lost in history? Um, these are dishes that people have totally forgotten for the most part. Hmm. There are a few that have survived. Like there's uh, Lokmal Qadi, the, 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 the judge's morsel mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. that's still made. And, um, you know, the... Uh, that sort of um, Zalabia, though that sort of like uh, it's kind of like funnel cake. Mm-hmm. That was already being made. Cool. Uh, but, but the things that survive tend to be simple things like breads yeah. and um, sweets, which have a kind of like a, a recipe that doesn't you can't change too much, or they you know pastries that you can't change it too much, or they don't work anymore. Oh. But the stews, you know, on the you know, have all been changed more or less. Yeah. Right. They look a little familiar. Um, so we're almost out of time, but I just um, wanted to sort of ask, uh, what do you hope to accomplish with Sense and Flavors? Do you, do you want folks to get a glimpse of and restart, you know, re-embrace these dishes, or is there something more to that? I, I think people would enjoy a lot of these dishes in the mm-hmm. modern world, but it's basically, I think, uh, I wrote it because I was satisfying my own curiosity, and I think a lot of people are kind of curious about food history. I mm-hmm. mean... Here's the food today. Where did it come from? This is way back before anything that uh, we're dealing with today. Yeah. But it's it's fascinating to see what people were eating in the past. It's kind of like it's kind of like encountering the past in an immediate sensory way. Yeah. It's like uh, easy time travel. Totally. Food is really timeless too. It's uh It's yeah. It's, 
It's always endlessly fascinating. Well, um, I'm definitely going to try out some of these recipes. So thank you so much for sharing this with us. Thanks so much for, for all the time that you've taken today just to speak with us about it. And uh, that's about all the time we have for today. But um, definitely check out Scents and Flavors, a Syrian cookbook edited by Charles Perry, just out from University of New York, New York University Press. And uh, thanks again, Charles. My pleasure. All right. And thanks, everyone at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Fresh Pickings is a podcast by Heritage Radio Network, presented by Bob's Red Mill. Love learning about food? Get more superfood for your brain with the featured podcast miniseries, Fresh Pickings. Go to bobsredmill.com slash freshpickings. Today on Fresh Pickings, we're taking a look at a trend that's old as time, paleo. The Paleolithic diet is a nutritional program based on foods available to humans living in that era. The idea was introduced in 1975 and was popularized by Lauren Cordain in his 2002 book, The Paleo Diet. In 2012, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics described paleo as one of the latest trends in diets, and in 2013, it was Google's most searched weight loss method. On this episode, we'll talk to Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears, about the paleo diet, paleo foods, and paleo flowers. Then, Krista Margies, a baker from Charlotte, North Carolina, will share a paleo flower recipe with us. I'm your host, Kat Johnson. Welcome to Fresh Pickings. Humans have been on Earth for some 2 million years. For 99% of this period, they have lived as hunter-gatherers. Of the estimated 80 billion people who have ever lived on Earth, more than 90% have foraged for all of their food. Only in the last 11,000 years or so have humans begun to domesticate plants and animals. And now, gathering or foraging is totally cool again. Have you ever gone foraging, Kat? This is Kathy Irway, host of Eat Your Words. She also runs a blog called Not Eating Out in New York. I have, actually. 
I went morel foraging in Georgia a couple years ago, but I don't think I'm as experienced as you. Oh, well, I love to forage. I mean, I just picked some spring onions the other day in the park. I've been on a few tours around the city, and uh, I just love to create recipes from whatever I find. You go foraging in New York City? Yeah, there's some like great foraging tours. Wildman Steve Brill hosts some. But, you know, you can go find a lot of things. So which park do you go foraging in? Well, I live right by Prospect Park, which is like a gold mine for foraging. And the woods are actually pretty well protected, and you can really forget that you're in Brooklyn sometimes. Hey, Kat, what do you think of when I say paleo? I'm talking with Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears here on Heritage Radio Network. Harry is also the co-owner of The Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store in Williamsburg. Well, when I hear the word paleo, I think about cavemen. Yeah, you're not far off. I mean, I was talking more about the paleo diet, which, you know, it's an approach that is the idea that humans evolved to eat certain foods. And when we transitioned from hunter-gatherers into sort of a settled, more agricultural lifestyle, that our foods became overly processed. And the paleo diet avoids those processed foods. So what foods are we talking about that are in the paleo diet? There's a lot of variability uh, in the way that the diet is interpreted, but typically when people talk about the paleo diet, it includes vegetables, fruits, nuts, roots, meat, as well as organ meats, uh, really using all of the animal. And it usually excludes things that humans came to consume later, like coffee, alcohol, processed oils, salt, sugar, dairy, legumes, and sadly, grains. Okay, grains. So does that mean that on the paleo diet, you can't have flour? That's correct. You can't have flour that comes from grains like wheat. But thankfully, it's really easy now to make baked goods with flour alternatives. There's been a lot of flour alternatives that have been developed. And if you're following the paleo diet, you can use substitutes, nut flours, root starches that are being blended to create things like paleo pizza, pancakes, cookies, and more. Okay, that sounds a whole lot better. I think I could follow a diet if I could still have pizza and cookies. They're some of my favorite foods. But how do you know so much about the paleo diet anyway? I don't follow the diet myself, but I've spent some time sort of learning about it. I've had some great guests on Feast Your Ears to talk about it. And last year, in episode 19, I interviewed Samir Patel, who's a science journalist, photographer, and editor based here in Brooklyn. He's the deputy editor at Archaeology Magazine, and he had a lot to say about how early humans ate and how that relates to the paleo diet. So, Harry, why do people choose to eat paleo now? Well, the paleo diet follows similar foods to those eaten by our earliest ancestors. And if you think about the entirety of human history, the modern age is actually very small. And humans evolved for a very long time before we became settled, you know, and started farming. So the idea is that if you follow those nutritional guidelines, you're putting your diet more in line with the evolutionary pressures that shaped our genetics. And that makes our bodies happy. It definitely does sound like a very healthy way to eat. So do you sell paleo-friendly products at the Brooklyn Kitchen? Absolutely, we sure do. There's no doubt that fruit and veggies and lean proteins are great for your body, and we promote cooking with real ingredients. The available scientific data about it shows that eating this way can lead to improvements in body composition, metabolic effects, compared to a typical modern Western diet, which tends to include a lot of processed foods. If you cut out all that junk and focus on fresh, real food, it can certainly help your body. Are there any downfalls to the paleo diet besides not having coffee and beer, which are two big ones? 
Well, I don't think I could follow it because I definitely need coffee. Beer, I suppose I could live without, but probably not coffee. Um, one of the main things is it can be tough to get adequate calcium intake on the paleo diet, so you have to sort of be careful for that. Humans have adapted nutritionally over time, and we do need to remember that our digestive abilities are not exactly the same as those of paleolithic humans. We've changed along with our diet in the modern world. Some critics take issue with the whole premise of the diet, but there are a lot of proponents of it. I think if I was transported back to Paleolithic times, the food I would miss the most would be chocolate cake. I love chocolate cake. But luckily, if I decided to go paleo, Bob's Red Mill's paleo baking flour would allow me to still eat all the cake I wanted with no worries. I mean, as long as we're not also counting calories. So to find the perfect paleo chocolate cake recipe, I enlisted Krista Margies from Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay, Krista, tell me a little bit about how you got into baking. I've been baking pretty much all of my life, but I went to school almost 10 years ago specifically for baking and pastry and just went out into the world with it. And I worked in several restaurants, and now I am teaching others at the Art Institute of Charlotte. Great. And before that, you worked at a donut shop. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I did. It's a gourmet donut shop in Charlotte. Everything is made from scratch, and everything is locally sourced and totally fresh. So, of course, naturally, we would, you know, we listen to the customers. And we had a few gluten-free customers, so we developed a recipe, a gluten-free recipe specifically for them. And what was that recipe? It was using Bob's one-to-one, which is a series of uh, starch flours, plus the addition of xanthan gum, because, you know, when you don't use wheat, you don't have that gluten production, so you need something to bind it with. So Bob's Red Mill had that already completely made for you. This is Kat jumping in. I just wanted to mention that Bob's one-to-one flour is not the same as their paleo baking flour, which we will get to shortly. So it was, it was Bob, that, and, you know, everything else, the eggs, and the fat, and the spice. <laughs> awesome. So you um, worked on a recipe for this episode, and you picked up some paleo flour to work with. Can you tell me a little bit about using that? Yes, definitely. With baking... It's really easy to just subtract gluten out of baking just by incorporating air using your eggs. When you whip eggs for five, ten minutes, it doubles and triples in size. So you have that frothy rise. So when you add something that doesn't have gluten to it, it doesn't really matter because you've already got it puffed up. Awesome. So tell me a little bit more about the recipe that you're including in this episode. It's a very simple recipe. It's called chocolate fondant. It's essentially chocolate lava cake. Really what it is is eggs whipped to that double frothy goodness and melted chocolate, a little bit of coconut oil for that fat texture, and the paleo baking flour. 
Perfect. So for anyone else who's trying to kind of experiment with recipes using paleo flour as a replacement for traditional flour, do you have any other tips other than, you know, making sure you're whipping the eggs more? You can do it also with egg whites. Obviously, you create a meringue, you get that rise. Um, But really, baking powder, baking soda. Great. Thanks to Krista for sharing her tips for using paleo baking flour. You can find her recipe at bobsredmill.com slash fresh pickings. Well, that's our show. Be sure to check out bobsredmill.com slash fresh pickings for more of our favorite ingredients, delicious recipes, and great coupon offers. Join us next week for more fresh pickings brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Bob's Red Mill is a believer in good food for all. I'm Kat Johnson. Thanks for joining us.